coming back from a men's conference at Camp St. Christopher, where they were kind enough to scholarship six of our cadets, so I took them down. And to save money, I <coughs> myself, it was not scholarship, and our worship leader, Trip Coon, it was not scholarship, with the cadets in the cabin. <laughs> that was a serious error. <laughs> About 2.30 in the morning on Friday night, I decided I would not be sleeping in the cabin. So I went out and put the seats down in the Jesus, and I slept in the Jesus. But all that to say, I'm very tired. <laughs> um, and I'm afraid that I'll be more than slightly incoherent. So uh, you can pray for me uh, that God would give Hamilton the courage to turn off my microphone <laughs> at any point in the next few minutes. Uh, or that I would have the sense to say amen if things get too strange in my head. You've been warned. <laughs> Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for your word that speaks clearly about who you are and surprisingly about who you are, that our suspicions about you can color it, can make us miss things that are hidden in plain sight. So we pray. Holy Spirit, you'd help us see the surprising goodness of God, hidden in plain sight, that you would remove uh, the barricades and barriers we've set up that prevent us from seeing the goodness of God in Jesus Christ. And that seeing the goodness, we would understand the power of it. We ask this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, uh, you know, maybe that this morning we're concluding several weeks worth of thinking about happiness and its relation to the Christian life and the focus of this morning, which is the final session in this series, is uh, talking about our joy and our happiness and sharing that with the others. Or put it in a different way, inviting people into the joy that we have in Jesus Christ. So I can imagine hearing that, that, that you know what we're talking about by now. You're saying, well, you, you saying inviting other people into our joy is just a nicer way of saying evangelism. And now that we've said evangelism, I know that there's a whole host of emotions that are rising in your mind and in your heart, the, the nervousness that you feel sharing your faith. Some of you have, uh, have imbibed uh, uh, some justified thinking that when Christians share their faith, it's, it's often clumsy, it's awkward, it can be judgmental, it can be aggressive. And so I can imagine now that you've heard, we're finishing off this series thinking about how we can invite other people into the joy and the happiness that we have in Jesus Christ, some of you might be thinking, well, it, uh, it may be a little bit arrogant to think that what makes me happy, and, uh, and I'm talking about my relationship with Jesus Christ, can be a little arrogant to think what makes me happy could make someone else happy. I can imagine someone here exploring Christianity saying, well, I'm, I'm happy to explore this with you in a non-confrontational way, but, but I have the same, same uh, criticism of this, that, that what makes you happy, it's a massive assumption that what makes you happy, your relationship with Jesus, could make me happy. And I understand the concern. I, I appreciate the concern. But uh, I also want to know why you gave me a wedding Why should I care about your wedding? Why did you put the sonogram up on Facebook? Why would I care about that? What is your child to me? 
Why do I care that my neighbor got a new kitten? Why do I care about that? Why does my neighbor care that I got an, an electric pole saw for Christmas? He does care. <laughs> He's very excited about it. A, a lot of your actions are built off of the assumption that what makes you happy, other people will be made happy by. That's why you send out wedding invitations. That's why you want people to know that, that, that you're having a child. That's why... That's why you get excited with, with the new kitten in the household. You are assuming that that kitten has power to make your neighbor happy. I'll tell you what it does. So does your pregnancy. So does your wedding. You and I can share an enormous amount of joy together. An enormous amount of joy. And so there's a way of thinking about evangelism that is obligation, and I, I think, uh, and, and it's a true obligation. One of the last things Jesus says to us before he uh, goes to sit at the right hand of the Father is that we're to go into all nations and disciple people in the way of Jesus. That, that's an obligation. But we can overlook the, the very basic human fact that when something comes into our lives that makes us happy, we have an instinctive need to share with other people. And it's a good instinct. It's a right instinct because often when joy comes into our life, it has power to bring joy to other people's lives. That's what I want to talk with you about today. I want to use Luke chapter 15. Uh, love when you follow along. That's how you know I'm not making it up as we go. And uh, I, I want to begin by talking about the, the real problem with evangelism because we, we have a lot of problems right now with evangelism, with sharing our faith. But I want to talk to you about when, when done correctly, what is the real problem with Christian evangelism? And then from there, I want to talk about why it's a real problem in terms of, of uh, God's life and attitude towards us. And, uh, and we'll close with that. So what is the real problem with Christian evangelism? What is the real problem with the joy we have in Jesus putting it in front of other people? Well, I think, uh, I think problem number one is it can come across as extremely arrogant. You know, I, I have found the way and the truth and the life. And it's, my, it's not just my way and truth and life. It is the way and truth and the life. And, and I've noticed that you don't have it yet. I've found something special and I want to share it with you. And a lot of times uh, when, when we share the gospel, it can make it seem... Like uh, we're ahead of people somehow, that, that we have found uh, through, through uh, some deep spiritual insight that they simply don't have. And we found it and we're going to share it with them and often it can come across as, as kind of arrogant. Now I, I, what I do want to let you know is that Christians aren't the only ones that share their good news in an arrogant way. People share their good news in an arrogant way all the time, uh, and I was painfully reminded of that at the last national championship. <laughs> it can be arrogant. It, 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 it can also come across as judgmental, especially when hell's, hell's brought into the equation. You know, the, the, the man at the, the coffee shop who just came from the sermon about evangelism, and, and he's full of angst because he knows he has to share the gospel because the preacher just told him to, and he's looking for the end, the best one he can come up with is that coffee is piping hot. You know what else is hot? Hell is piping hot. You don't want to go to hell, do you? Well, I know a guy who can get you out of it. And that can come across as extremely judgmental. And could flag you for certain 
social personality disorders as well. <laughs> but Christians aren't the only ones that share good news in a judgmental way. You know, I'm, in, in Mount Pleasant, I'm particularly aware of this because uh, we, we have folks who, who market fitness and they market it by showing their absolutely perfect bodies uh, as a way of saying, you do not have this absolutely perfect body. And I don't need to be persuaded of that. You know, that's, that does not take an extremely tight argument for me. But it's an invitation to take on their lifestyle based off of your inadequacy. You see? So Christians aren't the only ones that can share good news in a judgmental way. So uh, it, it, it's popular right now to say Christians are arrogant, Christians are judgmental. But I think it's probably better to say people are arrogant and people are judgmental. Yeah? I don't think these are the real problems from the book about Christian evangelism. The real problem from the book is not that it's too judgmental, it's not that it's too arrogant. The real problem from the book is it's too expansive, too arms open. That's the problem that the book presents. And, and I'll show you that the tax collectors and sinners are all drawing near to him. That's the first verse. Who's the him? Well, it's Jesus. And the Pharisees grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. What is the big problem with sharing the joy of Jesus in the first century? It's that it welcomes too many people. It seeks to share that joy with too many people. It seeks to share that joy with the wrong kinds of people. You can see this in different uh, societies, in different countries throughout history. It's, a, it's an enormous problem in India right now, where Christianity is ascendant among a population called the Dalits which roughly translated means broken or trampled upon. There's a, there's a class of people in India that are called broken and trampled upon. Guess how they're treated? They're trampled upon. They're financially taken advantage of. Uh, their employment is taken advantage of. They don't get good housing. They're not allowed to use certain facilities. They're, they're complete castaways. And the real social problem in India with the Christian gospel right now is when Christian missionaries came and guess who they treated with dignity? Guess who they treated with respect? Guess who they welcomed with enormous open arms? The broken and the trampled people. Guess who had a real problem with that? The upper four castes. The upper four castes. What's the big problem with, with this when done right? It has open arms. Yeah, open arms. To all the wrong sorts of people. That's the big problem. Here's the next thing that I want you to understand. Why does it have great big open arms? Why does it have painfully open, vulnerable arms to all kinds of people, especially the wrong kinds of people? Well, that's the next thing we want to talk about because Jesus tells three stories. I know you know the parable of the prodigal son, but I don't know if you've ever realized it's, there is no parable of the prodigal son. There are three stories linked together to answer the grumbling of people who said, why are you letting them come to you? Why are you letting all the wrong sorts of people come to you? We feel like we're being crowded out. Jesus heard the grumbling and he tells three stories. All three stories are about something that's been lost. And, uh, and the pain of the loss increases with each story. All three stories are about finding the lost thing. And in all three stories, there's an invitation 
there's an assumption on the person that found to invite others into the joy of the finding. Yeah? In all three stories. So let's, let's just think about this, this first uh, feature of these stories, that something's lost. In all three stories, something is lost. The first story is about a, a, a lost sheep, Luke 15, verse 4. What man of you having a hundred sheep, if he's lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? Jesus is telling a story that they, they would have understood because they're agrarian people, they're shepherds. And uh, he's telling them a story that is meant to make them anxious. That's meant to put them in distress. The hearers, some of them, not all of them, would have been able to say, Yeah, I lost a sheep once. And I was driven to the irrational act of leaving 99 of them to look for the one. That's how much it bothered me. I, I remember when that happened to me. Irrational. Cut your losses. Make sure the 99 are fine. Why do you do that? Because you're distressed. You're anxious about the one. The next story is about a, a lost coin. It's in verse 8. What woman having ten silver coins, if she loses one, does not light a lamp, sweep the house, and seek diligently until she finds it? The one coin is worth way more than the one sheep. We're, we're escalating concerns here. Yeah? She's looking at, at several months worth of income in a lost coin. And so she's anxious. I, I took um, 40 cadets to camp on the lower slopes of Caesar's Head outside of Greenville a couple weeks ago. One of them lost their phone. We were there the whole week and lost it on Friday. And we're so attached to our phones right now, you know, habitually attached to them. Uh, if we're not doing anything, we instinctively reach for them and it's, we have our photographs, our memories on it. It's how we communicate with people and text and phone call. There's so much precious financial information. There's so much precious information on a phone. And she lost her phone and it ruined her whole weekend. It, it was consuming the anxiety of losing the phone. Yeah? Ruined the whole weekend. She enlisted other people into her anxiety. And we were all looking. Why is Jesus telling you stories about lost things? Because when we lose things, what is, what is our emotional state? We're in distress. We're anxious and it prompts us to action. And the last story is, is the biggest punch of all, isn't it? It's a lost son. Lost son. That's what the last story is about. And I can think of, of no greater distress for a parent than a lost child. I can think of no greater distress. And I, I bet some of you, the more theologically savvy people in the room, you're sitting here and you're thinking, are you really about to make a leap from the distress of these people and their lost things to God? Are you really going to make a leap that God himself is distressed over lost things? And I say theologically savvy because some of you might have learned about a, a thing called the doctrine of God's impassibility. And in a nutshell, it means that he's unaffected, yeah, by the, by the goings on of the world. But it doesn't mean he doesn't have an emotional life. It doesn't mean that. 
What it means is what God is right now. He is eternally is. And so let me help you draw a link. He is an eternal father. Yeah? And what I learned when I was made a father is that I had a strange mix of enormous joy and enormous fear. Enormous joy and enormous fear all at the same time. Enormous joy over this little thing. And enormous fear about what could happen. And God is an, an, an eternal Father, you see. We're not introducing something new into God when you say is the capacity to be distressed or worried or anxious. He, he's an eternal Father. Eternally full of joy and fear because He has a Son. An eternal side. And when God comes in the flesh, he exhibits this distress, doesn't he? Because when he looks at Jerusalem, what's he do? He weeps. Long have I pleaded with you to come to me, and I would have sheltered you under my wings, he said, as he's crying. When we have lost things, we're in distress. And Jesus is, is giving us a picture of a, of a distressed, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Distressed. And Jesus is also giving a picture of the relieving of this distress. The shepherd finds the sheep, and the woman finds the coin, and the father finds the son. A lot of people miss this part. This last part about the prodigal son. The, the son is on his way home, but the father finds him on the road. And what the father was doing is he's sitting on the porch and he's looking. I found coin, I found sheep, and I found son. And when the shepherd finds the sheep, and when the woman finds the coin, and when the father finds the son, they all do the same thing in all three stories. Verse 6, when he comes home, he called together his friends and his neighbors, rejoice with me, for I found my sheep that was lost. Verse 9, when she found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, rejoice with me, for I found the coin that I had lost. Verse 22, the father said to his sons, uh, to, to his servants, bring quickly the best robe, put it on him, put a ring on his hand, shoes on his feet, bring the fatted calf and kill it. Let us eat and celebrate. For this son was dead, he's alive, he was lost, and he's found. They began to celebrate. That's what they did together. And there's a, there's a reason they do that together. There's a reason even God himself wants you to know when something is lost and is found, he, uh, he invites you to celebrate with him. C.S. Lewis wrote a lot about this in a little book called The Commentary on the Psalms. And I'll read to you some things that he said. He said, the most obvious fact about praise, whether of God or anything, escaped me. I thought of it in terms of compliment, approval, or the giving of honor. I never noticed that all enjoyment 
spontaneously overflows into praise. Shyness or the fear of boring others is deliberately brought in to check it. I'll give you an example. You're riding across a bridge and there are little people in your car and they see something exciting. A bird or a boat or an airplane. And what do they always do? Look at that! What are they trying to do? They're trying to enlist you into the enjoyment of what they're enjoying right now. That's what C.S. Lewis is saying. He's, he's saying, uh, it, it escaped me, this very simple fact, that when we celebrate something, we're not, we're not giving compliments. When we celebrate something, we're enlisting other people to enjoy what we're doing. He went on to say, the world rings with praise. Lovers praising their mistress, Romeo praising Juliet, vice versa. Readers their favorite poet, walkers praising the countryside, players praising their favorite game. Praise of weather, wines, dishes, actors, motors, horses, colleges, countries, historical personages, children, flowers, mountains, rare stamps, rare beetles, even sometimes politicians or scholars. I think that's changed a lot since when he wrote that, that last bit. <laughs> Except where intolerably adverse circumstances interfere. I want you to listen to this. Praise almost seems to be inner health made all. Praise is inner health made audible. Why does God enlist people to celebrate? Because he's no longer in distress. Inner health made audible. I lost a son and it worried me. I lost a daughter and it scared me. And now they're flooding home. And I'm not in distress anymore. Yeah, it's inner health made audible. And so, how are we? I want you to think about this first in terms of you. I want you to know that God has been anxious over you, that God has been in distress over you. I want you to know that. God has been on the hunt for you. And the people I want to hear it most of all are the people who think nobody would be in distress over them. The people I want to hear it most of all are the people who think nobody would be on the hunt for them. I have a friend whose uh, parents were both deeply abusive to her. And they've cast her out of the home. They prevent her from, from coming home. And they, they've told her she's worthless. They've told her she's no good. And, she, this got in her head so much that she used to write the things her parents said about her on her body in a permanent marker. She used to write worthless on her body. She used to write no good. She used to write ugly. Yeah. And she came to Christ recently. And she gave her testimony to our friends down in the Citadel. And what, this is what she said about the church that we're a part of down there. She said, this is the first group of people I ever thought wanted me. And I learned from, from being wanted by them that the God they worship actually wants me to. God is anxious over such people. He's in distress over such people. He cares about such people deeply. 
And I want, I want you to know, if you're one of those people, that that's his attitude towards you. And that the visible, tangible distress of God is the crucifixion of Jesus on the cross. It's the resurrection where what was lost is found. Yeah. And it's the resurrection where, where God is, is calling you and I to celebrate with him, that what was lost has been found. Yeah? Here's, uh, here's the next thing I want you to know. Is that when you and I share, share the joy that we have in Jesus, we're, we're not just sharing the joy we have in Jesus. We're sharing the joy God has when he finds his lost sons and daughters. That's what we're sharing. And so, uh, when we think about evangelism, I don't want you to think it so much about this is my truth that I'm sharing with you. It's my truth that I'm imposing on you. The better way to think about it is, uh, is there somebody, you, you don't know him maybe, but there's somebody that knows you. He misses you, he hurts for you, and he is looking for you. And you can come home to him. You can come to him before you believe all the right things about him. You can come to him before you stop doing all the things that you've been told you shouldn't have been doing anyway. You can come home to him right now. That's, that's what it's all about. And the last thing I want to say is a warning. Is that if you take this seriously, then people will come into your life. And they can sometimes be the wrong kinds of people. I was at a, an event some time ago where uh, a, a really generous donor scholarship uh, 30 guys from a, a, a home that people were checking into to get sober. And uh, they, they were, some of them, ex-cons, ex-felons. And they came to this Christian conference with 300 other people. And those 300 other people had nice button-up shirts, and they smelled clean, and they looked handsome, and they looked pretty, and they looked like they had money in their pockets. And I'll tell you that when these guys came in from this home, they were extremely disruptive. They were disruptive because during the praise music, they would scream and jump and clap and say amen. And with the guys with the button-down shirts were going, I'll, I'll do it. <laughs> but the, the most amazing thing that I saw was when we were all sitting down for, for lunch, the guys from, from this house at the, at the end, they got this plate full of hamburgers first. And they went through the hamburgers, you know, they're piling up, they're doing quarter pounders and double and triple stacks. And, and I remember a guy at the end of the table, you know, in his nice clothes, I remember he slammed the table and he swore at them. And then he said, you idiots have eaten up all the food. Now we don't have anything to eat. Actually, just take the bowl back to the cafeteria and you get more. That's how it worked. <laughs> but what it, it, was a, it was a pretty visible demonstration that you can sing praises to the Lord and study the Bible and then sit at the table with, with people whom God has been distressed over. 
and who have come here. And his inner health is made audible. And they are celebrating with us. And I want to warn you that there are people who will grumble. And the warning is, at the end of these three stories, everyone is found in the man who grumbled. Everyone is in the home but the man who grumbled. He's still lost. The upside down thing about Christianity is it's often the worst, most wounded, weak people who come streaming in. But it's often the most put together, disciplined people that find themselves on the porch wondering what the heck happened. So that's the warning. And the invitation to come and celebrate with God. Today, as many people who were lost have been found. Yeah. And to celebrate that we've been found ourselves. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you that you have been on the hunt for us. You have been distressed in your mind and in your heart and even in your body on the cross, distressed for us. And having been found, you invite us <coughs> to celebrate with you. We thank you that millions of people around the world are streaming into the kingdom of God. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would, you would guard us and defend us from grumbling, from making the gospel too small so that we might celebrate now and with you for eternity. We ask this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.